Okay, so today I'm going to do part two of my review of Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson's new book. So I did the first five chapters before now we're getting into rule number six, which is abandon ideology. Now, this is kind of an interesting one. I almost think it could be referred to, it could be retitled to recognize your ideology because so when you think of ideology, it, we tend to think of like religious fundamentalists. The reality is that you can have an ideology that's more than just a religious ideology. And and that's kind of how the chapter plays out, is he tries to demonstrate how ideologies beyond just religious ones um, skew your thinking in a way and cause essentially closed-mindedness. So he, at one point, sums it up as to um, to say that one of the things that ideologies do is they try to simplify a very complex issue and create a villain in the process of doing that. Um, they tend to make discussions of certain topics taboo. Now, if, if you want to start the thought process of that on on like religious fundamentalism think of the expression god works in mysterious ways which if you've listened to this before you, you know i hate that thought i hate that line of thought and and what that means it means stop asking questions or or sometimes uh when it comes to you know uh sexuality and that some some religious groups kind of shy away from it they say no that's not to be talked about What about things like canceling Dr. Seuss? You can't talk about that. You can't talk about things that are uncomfortable. We have to take them out of society. Okay? That's doing the same thing in a different kind of ideology. And another thing that they sometimes do in in this process is he articulates it quite well. Actually, talking about what they... They sort of use language that's coded and designed to be impenetrable. This is the art of rhetoric. And it exists in in politics, and it exists in um, in religion as well. Uh, you know, when when you want to create language that either confuses people or um, becomes convoluted in certain ways, or just or trick questions do this um, language that's kind of manipulative, and they. Uh, duck around the the actual thing. So so in in his estimation, I'm going to try to keep it brief. There, there's a lot of interesting talks in here. He talks a lot about Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, which are quite fascinating topics. Um, but I think one of his the best points he makes in this section is he differentiates religious ideology and non-religious. Uh, or fundamentalism. 
And he, this, this is an interesting point I never really thought about before, that religious fundamentalists, they kind of know. They kind of know that what they're basing their faith on is beyond what you can empirically prove. They know that they're taking a leap of faith. They know that, and that's part of what makes it important because you need uh, a certain amount of faith and a certain amount of humility in order to say, I don't know everything. Um, there's a greater power that knows more than I do. Um, that requires, so, so, so you kind of know it. It's built in. It's baked into the cake. Whereas non-religious fundamentalists don't admit to their fundamentalism. They don't, no, 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 I'm not, I don't, I'm not an ideologue. I don't, I'm not a fundamentalist. They don't admit it, which means that they can now like, they quickly become prideful and think they have a complete knowledge and basically be blind to their, um, to their ideologies. So that's why I was saying at the beginning that I think you could almost rename this, be aware of your ideologies. And I think it's a, that's a good rule of thumb. I don't, even though, you know, like I'm, I'm, I think spiritual growth is an important thing. I don't think blind faith is a good thing. I think we were given rationality to use and as much as um, assholes like Matt Dillahunty want to try to use his rhetoric tricks and try to pit rationality and reason against religion. Um, that's not how it actually works in the real life. And you can have both. Uh, they don't have to be pitted against each other. And I, I think, so anyway, my point is I don't like blind faith and I think blind faith is the religious side of ideology and I think people can get blind faith in their, you know, in their political ideologies too, whether it's conservative, whether it's liberal. I mean, you should be, this, actually, I think I was, I mentioned this in, when talking about the first book about how I was amazed that the freedom of speech used to be the domain of the left and now suddenly it's the right where it's for me it's like that's always been important to me so when the left adopted it I was more left and when the right are adopting it I lean more right because it's that principle that I find to be important I don't care who which I'm not going to say well I'm going to change my view on that just because now the party I claim to be part of doesn't like it that's fucked that's ideal that's being ideologically driven and you never know quite where the winds of change are going to sway that. Um, you need a stronger foundation than that, I think. And it's a challenging thing. And I think this is part of what he tries to address in this book is that there's a place for the greater good. There's a gr place for the societal, um, so, uh, the, the society, what's best for them, taking priority. There's also a place for the individual. Either one of those, and, and individual rights, either one of those taken too far can be a bad thing. In fact, he starts it off by, by pointing that out. If I can, I actually made a note on this because it's quite an interesting point. He, he mentioned that as a society, we've been so concerned with rights that we've almost been messaging to young people that, um, in his words, they need to they ought to demand what they're owed by society. Um, so that's an example of the individual rights going too far, the entitlement thing, which it's funny because the, the right 
seems to fight against um, entitlement, you know, in favor of personal responsibility. But at the same time, uh, it's it's the right's insistence on individual uh, right and that that almost has, in a way, caused people to feel entitled. It's it's quite interesting. I don't know. It's it's a huge issue, and, and this is why, because these issues are so huge and nuanced, that's why trying to simplify them the way ideologies would have you and, and just make a the other side the villain uh, never works. I mean, just briefly here, the, the whole Dr. Seuss thing, what I'm seeing a lot of on the left, I've seen a few prominent people say things like this, and they're, they basically... What they're trying to do is is say on one hand, yeah, I'm okay with that. I don't mind. I don't mind that you know Dr. Seuss books are being canceled, but don't blame me for it. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the left doing it. It was. It was the the heirs of the estate or whatever. So never mind who. It was obviously designed to appease. Never mind the fact. So you're saying you're okay with it, but you don't want to feel responsible for it. I mean, what a spineless worldview that is. And it's in the, this is not an uncommon belief to be held. Um, It's amazing and people don't even see it. So, and it all comes from your ideology. You're so married to your ideological values that you can't even call your own side out. I will have to give Bill Maher props here. Um, I think he called this one out. He's called a few of them out, you know. Um, I don't agree with much of what Bill Maher says, to be honest. But at least he is consistent. And he calls out his own side when they need to be called out. I think that's the right thing to do. I think everybody should be doing that. So uh, ideology. Um, Recognize it and try to abandon it in favor of open-minded thinking. Uh, pretty good message, I think. Rule seven is here. Let me pull it up. Uh, work as hard as you possibly can on one thing and see what happens. Now, this one kind of took me a bit by surprise because I didn't realize what word was being emphasized. So the word that's being emphasized is is, is on one thing. So this is a call against um, not being a jack of or of all trades master of none rather focus on being master of one and try to see what happens and what he's talking about here is the power of pointing or aiming at something specific and he mentions that that comes with a sacrifice you are sacrificing other things if you're focused solely on or primarily on one thing now i think it's I think it's pretty obvious to most people that, you know, you can, you don't have to say neglect your family in order to um, pursue something of value to you. You don't have to, you know, totally abandon a social life. And actually, I was guilty of that when I was younger. I, I think I let my my friendships and relationships suffer a bit in the pursuit of I wanted to be a filmmaker so I was single-minded on that and I saw the folly of that of being obsessed and even still this this podcast is called Man's Search for Muscle well even still 
I see that if you become obsessed in your physical appearance, um, that can be detrimental. On the other hand, if you don't aim at something, you are lost and you feel meaningless. And so it's, again, like anything, it's a, it's a, it's a good balance, right? And, um, and I, so, but I think the sentiment behind this, I mean, I would guess that based on where he's coming from as a, you know, clinical psychologist and that probably he tends to bring things up where he sees a need for things. So my guess is that he sees more people that are kind of aimless than he sees people who are obsessed with one thing to a fault. So that's probably why he's emphasizing this one. Um, So uh, rule eight is, I think it's somewhat self-explanatory. It's try to make one room in your home as beautiful as possible. So while, again, like some of these ideas, you can take it at the surface level or you can look at the deeper meaning behind it. For example, in the first book, when he says, you know, stand up straight with your shoulders back, uh, something like that. I mean, obviously it's got clear practical like literal implications but then there's what's the deeper meaning behind that and and the thought behind it so in this case he's talking a lot about the the I guess transcendent power of art and the wonder we experience as children when everything is new to us and we lose that a little bit when we're adults and and that good art you know is able to connect you to something bigger than yourself and um he makes an interesting observation. I've never thought of this before. I don't know how true it is, but the idea that paintings, pictures, these kinds of things, they have frames, and we almost want them in frames to keep keep the edges of them there. Um, it's it's a defining border between the reality and the reality of the painting. It's kind of an interesting idea. I never really thought much about before. Um, but uh yeah that's that's pretty much what the chapter is about is about beautifying your home i mean he talks a little bit about how he it's it's an expansion upon his idea where he said you know clean your own room um before trying to fix the world this is a little bit of an extension of that and and how you know really really focus on beautifying something small and within your control and within your home and and try to appreciate beauty I think is what the idea is yeah so his observations about art and artists is quite fascinating actually and a lot of it one of the ideas he brings forth is that you know it's sort of the artist's job to bring order to chaos Uh, so in order to do that you kind of need well, you need one foot in both, but you need to embrace the chaos in order to make order from it. And he makes the example of, you know, artists going to a rundown neighborhood and they beautify it and make it something special. And But then, you know, it suddenly becomes popular or whatever. And, and now, now as starving artists, they themselves can't afford to live there anymore. It's been t- sort of taken over and... Um, 
but they they move on to somewhere else to beautify and that's the, the way it works and it's quite cool to me the idea that you know this is one idea of what beauty and art is is bringing is and he talks about dreams and how it's not really organized it's not really fully understood and artists don't necessarily know exactly what they're trying to articulate because if they did they would articulate it you know instead they use things like different mediums dance um paint whatever the the medium happens to be to try to um to try to create something that maybe words can't quite express um, emotions and, and feelings and experiences and those kind of things and and he makes the observation therefore that you know when art becomes overly politicized it's not any longer the work of artists but posers and I think that's a good point we're seeing that too much and maybe that explains a little bit of why so much of today's TV and, and writing in Hollywood in general is such crap because people are so obsessed with being political uh, um, in Hollywood right now that they're not writing good material, they're writing political material. And I'm hoping that'll change over time. Hopefully we'll, they'll realize that and, and smarten up a bit. And maybe the fact that there isn't someone like Trump in office who they hate so much, uh, maybe that'll <laughs> temper it a little bit. Um, but anyway, bottom line is it's it's quite an interesting observation I think about about art and um, and an interesting way to view it I think. Rule nine is if old memories still upset you, write them down and caref uh, carefully and completely. So it starts off with a section called "But is yesterday finished with you?" and it's sort of talking about the anxiety that hits us when either we've been wronged or we feel guilty for having wronged someone else. I think it's, I think it's a fair observation. Um, I think pretty much every human being experiences this to some level. The question is, how do we cope with it? How do we try to overcome these things live with ourself without spending life either wallowing in self-pity or sadness. So he starts off a discussion about why we feel these things and it seems that it would be to avoid uh, either making the same mistakes in the future or try to protect yourself against being wronged and maybe they'll keep bothering us if we don't deal with them because maybe our subconscious thinks we aren't capable of these things of protecting ourselves uh, so rule nine kind of spoke to me on a way that in a way that the other ones didn't the others so far the as in as much as as you know, I feel I've gotten something out of them. It's been on an intellectual level. Whereas this particular one hit me more on a personal, emotional kind of level. I wasn't expecting that. Um, 
and I certainly the I didn't it, it came a little bit out of nowhere because I wasn't expecting that from uh, this book nor this chapter I mean the the chapter on the surface makes sense you know if if there's something that's bothering you then try to face it and get through it um, it was when he was talking about some of his experiences with a couple of his clients that it kind of dawned on me. I don't know why it didn't before this, but it I, I remembered back to personal experiences I've had with what you might call trauma. And uh, in my case, I was having nightmares of um, being physically abused into my 30s. And I had talked to many people about them, about this, and it just continued. And it wasn't until something happened between me and the individual involved uh, where, where he actually made amends I, I kind of, in a secondary way, addressed it with this person, and they sort of made amends, and the nightmares stopped. I didn't really, and I hadn't really thought much about it, you know. I mean, uh, from time to time, I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like that's kind of how I got through this, and, and how it seems to have been somewhat resolved in my subconscious, but I didn't make the connection between what he's talking about here and my experience until listening to the stories of his clients and the kinds of trauma, or in some cases it was more of perceived trauma. Um, one of the instances, it was a, a woman who went through her life feeling she was abused, and in the end, the the assailant, as it were, uh, was a six-year-old boy. Uh, she was four at the time or something like that. Um, and there might be something more there than, you know, and, and that was a pretty good example of somehow our perception plays into things that we, maybe if we spend more time dealing with it, they'll, we'll realize it's, it's not quite as bad as we've allowed ourselves it, to think it is, or maybe it is, but still dealing with it can can help us like in the case of one of his other clients where he came to the realization of uh, he was quite naive and and through the process of facing it realized that you know what had been haunting him was the realization of the capacity for people to want to inflict harm onto another one, onto another person. This was very difficult for him to come to terms to, and for years had him in a difficult place. Um, he was trying to come to terms with it, and I don't think he quite understood why. So I guess it speaks to the power of trying to, as he suggests in the rule, to write it down, physically write it down, if you don't have the ability to do things like, like I did, where I was able to to address it with the person involved. I didn't even mean to, to be honest. I, I mentioned it to someone else and they mentioned it to, uh, to this person and it got back to them and, and we talked it out. 
But so it, it was fortunate in that way, even though it was uncomfortable at the time. Um, so anyway, yeah, the bottom line is this, this chapter is, it's sort of unique. I think it builds well on the other ones, but in it's, it's sort of addressing a completely different issue. And I think it's one that if people open their minds to a little bit, they might realize there's a lot of value for them it, uh, the potential to make their lives a lot less difficult than it currently is. Uh, rule 10, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, plan and work diligently to maintain the romance in your relationships. So while most of the rules are about self-improvement and um, maybe mastery, this one is about having a harmonious relationship that benefits both people and how to do that and how to have respect and, and romance and not become spiteful towards your partner. And I mean, one of the stories he talks about is the perils of affairs and how they hurt both people. And um, one thing I think that's going to potentially become a little bit controversial is he suggests that um, people not just simply move in together instead of marriage and he his reasoning for that is that it's kind of entering a relationship without necessarily needing to commit and and you're giving yourself sort of a, a backdoor exit if required he admits that, you know, he and his wife moved in together before getting married, so he's not, you know, um, but he says maybe it wasn't the best thing to do, and he said for most people, if you want to commit to a relationship, you can't half commit to it, which I kind of get. Um, the one thing that I would say, he, he did say, well, if, if you disagree, like, I challenge you to come up with a... Um, coherent argument against it and I mean the first thing that I would have liked to have him for him to have addressed is the idea that weddings can be expensive for one thing and and I know in this so I know a lot of this book was written pre-covid even though the introduction he talks a lot about it or a bit about it anyway and I think that needs to be considered as well is that so when my wife and I were married, we had COVID considerations um, and people I know now, they're, they're like they don't want to get married while there's still lockdowns and, and difficult, um, I guess, procedures in place that would make it difficult for them to have all the family members and so on that they want there. Um, and for a lot of people, I think it's kind of an outdated institution and and I know they would scoff at that and say well I'm just as committed I don't need a legal piece of paper to make me committed to this that being said I think I see the value of marriage for sure and and that's maybe because my wife and I agree that even though we we moved in together and we were fully committed being 
actually married has been shockingly um, good from both our perspectives. And, and we, we like the having this added commitment. We like being able to, you know, refer to each other as husband and wife. And it's it's been, even though we didn't expect anything to change and for anything to be different, uh, it kind of is in a way. And it's hard for me to put my finger on it exactly. So I, I do see the value in marriage. Obviously, I love being married. I love my wife and I'm, I want to be with her the rest of my life. Um, I also had a, a failed marriage where, you know, we were married young. And even though I'm glad I got kids out of it, uh, I don't know. Were we a good match for each other? Was being married the right thing at, before we had a chance to figure ourselves out um i don't know um, but anyway this this chapter i it's kind of interesting uh for me because i'm in a place where i have the best relationship i've had in my life um a little bit of it was you know kind of nodding along you know the importance of dates and respecting the other person and these kinds of things um again much like a lot of the material i i think some of it will fall on deaf ears and the people who need to hear it won't. That might even be the case for me. I don't know. And It's so easy to let a relationship deteriorate if you don't tend to it. So I think he wants to warn against that and, and call to people to, you know, don't give up on it too early. And he, he admits there's there's cases where you do have to give up on it. You're with a psychopath or something or a violent person or an just a person that you don't want to be with. That, okay. But also don't, you know, rush out the door when, when maybe there's something there to be salvaged. Um, it's, it's a challenging one. Relationships are challenging and, and trying to know when it's a good one and when it's one worth valuing and saving. That's a personal question everyone has to ask. You know, I mean, my wife came from a relationship that wasn't abusive or anything, but it was joyless and it was loveless and she made the decision to end it and quite frankly I'm kind of glad she did because that means she can be with me now and I can be with her um, uh, of course I wouldn't want her to give up on our relationship um, uh, prematurely you know if, if it got to the point where we were unhappy then obviously things would be different but hopefully we can prevent that and so anyway, it's, um, like I said, pretty self-explanatory, um, pretty straightforward. Uh, like I said, I, I don't, if up to this point, this is probably the only one where I, I was like, kind of, eh, I, I don't know. I agree with most of the sentiment behind it, um, but not all of the material am I totally on board with. And again it's not a huge criticism it's just that relationships are extremely difficult and extremely personal and there's no one broad stroke you can give that's going to be good for everybody in their relationships i think he knows that i think he acknowledges that but there is a message there he wants to get across that you know and i think it's to do with the fact that if you deliberately work to bring romance into your relationship and you take it upon yourself to be that good partner um a lot of joy can come into your life and i think he's right about that if that's you know in, indeed what he's trying to say um 
I think it is. Thinking back on some of the content in the chapter, I think, I think you know, it's it, sometimes we, we become angry and bitter and, and we almost want to feel like a victim in our relationship when when in fact we you can think well what am I doing and I've found through my life in basically every relationship I've been in when I've taken it upon myself to give a little bit more and acknowledge a little bit more so even just saying you know sweetie I I love what you bring to this relationship it's it, it goes a long way rule 11 is do not allow yourself to become resentful, deceitful, or arrogant. Uh, on the surface, it sounds like good advice and quite simple. And, you know, I, I would agree with that. that. Those are all bad things. The chapter, though, is... <laughs> if you're familiar with Jordan Peterson's work, other than his you know, seeing some memes and stupid things like that. So he has a book called Maps of Meaning, and it's a very complex book, and it's talking about story and culture and I guess what you'd call uh, metaphysical-type patterns and these kinds of things. So this chapter reminds me a lot of that stuff and maybe maybe my brain was just too cooked to get much out of it but there wasn't it, it was a, it was a challenging chapter um, and I to be honest I didn't really get a lot out of it um, maybe when I re-listen to it slash read it if I actually purchased the the book um, there might be more there that I can actually absorb um, but it was it was difficult and it wasn't very direct um, and he, he talked about things like well one thing actually that kind of stuck out to me a little bit was he talked about well why are we passive in times when we think we ought to take action and it, that stuck out to me a little bit because uh, last night my wife and I watched the movie Venom and there's a scene in it... Actually, there's a couple scenes in the beginning where he's very passive. Um, and one in particular where he sees uh, basically a robbery going on. This guy demands money from this little old Asian lady. Protection money. Uh, so uh, holding, holding her at gunpoint and the character kind of, you know, he's hiding. Like probably most sane people would do, to be honest. Um, but he's kind of hiding um, around the shelf and 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 after the guy leaves then he kind of comes up and he's you know it's it's hard to make eye contact with her it's not superly heroic but then again you think about it there's not much maybe he could have done anyway um, but later toward at the end of the film basically he the guy shows up again and and now the the character, the main character, has the powers of, of this Venom symbiote. And he deals with him. The trouble is, while maybe it's neat to see a bad guy get his comeuppance, um, 
he didn't do this because suddenly as a character he's grown and he's now learned how to be courageous in a difficult it's because he's now got superpowers <laughs> you know so there was no character growth there or anything like that it was just you know he didn't learn how to not be passive um he just learned how to utilize uh i guess a a superpower that was you know came came into his possession so Anyway, that that's sort of why it kind of stuck out at me the idea of why why are we sometimes passive and and this particular film it, it was a fine film it was a you know light weight kind of enjoyable sort of movie but it certainly wasn't any kind of tale about how about maybe the stories that that Jordan Peterson was maybe thinking is are a little bit more impactful where we can learn about ourselves and learn why maybe we're passive in times when we're not so anyway like I say there wasn't a ton in this chapter for me at this point in time uh, just because of the complexity of it I think and and I wasn't ready for it uh, so if it's it's a it's a sharp detour from the other chapters I'll say that much uh, so rule 12 is about uh, being grateful in spite of your suffering. Now, um, unlike the last uh, rule, so rule 11, which was very challenging, and I, I'll say I'll have to go back over that. Sometimes the more challenging ones are, are the most valuable, but they're also, you know, challenging. Um, that one, you know, he's talking about the nature of reality and, um, and stories and uh, narratives and our lives being lived out like a story in the those kind, kind of existential type things um, rule 12 seems a little bit more straightforward and it's about the utility in um, how would I say this uh, I, this is going to sound weird but appreciating the suffering you go through uh, in an in, in interesting way, it kind of brings his other ideas together because he's saying, you know, that if you face the things that are difficult in life and are honest about them, uh, you can get through them. Uh, and he, he makes a point about how in order to appreciate the good in life and to have a sense of optimism that won't devolve into naivety or naivety. Anyway, um, you you need to embrace the dark. And I talked to that, about that a little bit in other ways too, but you need to experience and appreciate at least the, uh, the not-so-great things in life. He uh, sort of, in a sense, says, and almost literally says, actually, that basically, how can you be good if you don't know what bad means? Um, it, it's interesting. I mean, you, it kind of reminds me a little bit. Uh, there was a part of his when he was talking about the relationship thing. I didn't really mention it, but um, how part of, I guess, the contract of a relationship is that you're holding yourself. You're both um, holding yourself accountable to a sort of greater ideal, which is the ideal of a making the the relationship work I, I don't know the, to me this is kind of the same sort of idea that it's it's very 
it's a very deep way to think about a something that we experience in real time moment to moment and probably don't think about in these kind of terms uh, so I will say that it becomes very philosophical very quickly certainly not to the extent of, of rule 11 um, but it, it does yeah uh, become quite <laughs> a discussion beyond the seemingly simple title and one that uh, I suppose it's worth thinking about in a sense, but it's so I, I think the idea here is to understand why, because it's easy to say, you know, be grateful in spite of your suffering, but it's maybe a bit better to try to understand why. I think that's what he's trying to do, is understand on as profound a level as possible why we should be grateful for that, why we should understand that, um, in a sense, we almost need suffering. We need the bad to appreciate the good. I think that's essentially what he's getting at, is... Yeah, we need, we need, we ought to appreciate the bad for what we can get good from it or for something like that. Anyway, um, he, I mean, he talks about, he get, gets into things like, um, mythological figures and, um, caricatures of how we of, of adversarial forces you know which is interesting I guess and I suppose it's in it's good to be interesting when you're trying to discuss topics that are deeper than they seem on the surface um, but it, it it's things like this that make the book kind of challenging, which, again, uh, uh, it's maybe good that it's challenging. Um, I think I think there are ways that his ideas could be boiled down to more concise um, bits and, and variants of it. I think to the extent that people who have a problem with Jordan Peterson have a point... I think it's that he's not always direct. And I understand that. Because his points can be boiled down to more simple tidbits. Um, and sometimes sometimes that would behoove him. I mean, I've seen him in debates and things where it's like... His way of thinking through a situation isn't usually easy for people to follow um, in unless you're really focused on it. And that's the thing with this book, too, is you have to be really focused on it. It takes all of your attention. Um, uh, for a portion of it, I found myself kind of zoning out and paying attention to something else on my phone. And then I'm like, oh, for five minutes there, I just got completely lost. Now I have to go back... You know, so 
that, yeah, that kind of sums up the book quite well in, in a way. And uh, one of the other main things he talks about in Rule 12, he talks about, uh, I guess, debates he had with uh, a couple people who have the world view that, um, that basically life is so difficult and tragic and all those things that it would be better if we just stopped populating. Uh, that's a very bizarre and depressing view to me. I kind of think if that's your view, why haven't you killed yourself already? If, if you know, and, and have the courage of your convictions, but, um, but more than that, it, it kind of misses the point. It misses the point that the greatest meaning in life comes through overcoming challenges. And, and yes, there's some challenges that are insurmountable. And yes, we all feel hopeless sometimes. But if you're perpetually hopeless to the extent where you think that life itself it should be eradicated, uh, I don't see how that's productive. And, and that was kind of his point. Um, and, and the fact of the matter is that this chapter, of course, is all about gratitude. And, you know, he talks about how it's, it's kind of encouraging that things like Thanksgiving are, um, I guess, big institutions in this part of the world. And, um, and also put, gives an interesting reminder that's probably worth thinking about, which is that, you don't have to look too far to find somebody who's worse off than you are. And that person probably doesn't have to look too far to find someone worse off than they are. And obviously, we're all going to be better in some places and worse and worse off in other places. And that's just how it is. Um, it, it's a good thing to remember, you know, that could be a hell of a lot worse when we're in that, those kind of despairing moments. Um, but, but I mean, it was a call to, to try to try your best to be grateful for the good things in your life and, and be grateful for your ability to overcome the difficult things in life. The book finishes off with a coda, which personally I, I kind of liked uh, just because of my musical background and so using that as a way to conclude it as a denouement or whatever, uh, I, I kind of like. I can't remember if, if the first 12 rules did this either, but I, if it did, I think it was probably structured a little different because this coda was not like a conclusion in the typical fashion, much like this conclusion I'm making now. Um, it was more of a sum up of his life um, since writing this book and those kinds of things. And it was in a way kind of a follow up to the, uh, the introduction, which was very much talking about what went on in his life during jury uh, um, the period of time when he was writing the book this book and first coming into uh, prominence and 
and that. So it was it was more just a summary of his life more than it was a summary of the ideas in the book. So I don't know. I didn't really... I would have preferred it was more of a wrap-up in a sense, but... Um, but that's what you, that, that, it is what it is. Um, and it's, it's a lot of kind of like, thanks to my agents and these kinds of things. Um, anyway, so my take on the book overall, anybody who enjoys Peterson's work will enjoy this book. And I think it's designed in a kind of smart way that it's got parts, some parts that are easy to digest and others that are quite challenging. And that, that's good, actually. That's what the best children's books are written that way with, you know, one or two difficult words or passages or things that cause them to think and, and, and um, expand their abilities to read and that. Um, so this does that a little bit too. There's one or two chapters that are quite challenging, but it's not like Maps of Meaning where it's like it's overwhelmingly challenging. Um, so for them, I mean, it's it's not as easy to um, get through as something like a, a, a typical self-help book, like um, Seven Highly Effective, or Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that kind of thing. It's not that level of ease to get through. To, to actually grasp what he's saying, you really have to put a lot of effort into it, or, or at least some effort. Um, so if, if you're looking for something light and easy, this isn't the book for you. If you're looking for something to really, really challenge you, uh, I don't know if this will challenge you enough, but it'll perhaps get you thinking, or at least, uh, at least trying to understand a, a a worldview that might not be exactly the same as yours, because I don't think there's pe many people who think quite like Jordan Peterson thinks, so it's kind of fascinating fascinating to uh, get inside his head a little bit and, and see ideas unfold. This is why I like seeing him live, because it's he'll take a topic and then just run with it. Um, the... Will the ideas be applicable and helpful? Well, okay, so I'm of two minds on this. I recently read an article about Bill Nye the Science Guy. Um, personally, I find he's a bit of a blowhard, and I, he's more of a political guy than a science guy, because if his political leanings suggest something, even if it's unscientific, he'll jump on that bandwagon. Fine. It is what it is, and he hides behind this title, Science. Well, <laughs> this article put out by, um, I think it was Scientific American, said that the scientific community actually isn't very happy with this guy. And the reason is that, sure, some of the stuff he says might be right, um, but because he he puts so much focus on his political leanings, basically what happens is that anyone who doesn't share his political leanings will push back against him, even when what he's saying is right. So it makes basically, it makes the scientific community a bunch of enemies they don't want. Um, so, 
kind of the same here that I think a lot of his ideas are good, but the people who just generally hate him for whatever reason they, they want to hate him are may push back against ideas that are good ideas and worth considering and probably would help them very much, but they, they won't. And does that mean he shouldn't say them? No. Does that mean he shouldn't have his convictions or even Bill Nye shouldn't have his convictions? No. It's just the, rea- the reality of the situation that, that when you get boxed into a certain thing, it um, it means you, you have people pushing back against you. I found a lot of good ideas in this book. And he's quite quick to say, I, I can't remember what chapter he mentioned this in, but he did mention that, you know, one of the comments he gets a lot of times is that he didn't say anything... Sometimes he doesn't say something completely new to you, but he articulates it in a way that helps you understand what you already know to be true. And there's some value in that. And I think that's a large part of what this book is. A lot a lot of it is... I'd, there wasn't a lot of aha moments for me. Um, there was a couple, but it, it was more stuff like, yes, that makes sense to me. And that's a good way of, of articulating what I'm thinking or feeling or wanting to express. So that's basically my summary. Um, I enjoyed it. I think if you enjoy his work, you will enjoy it. If you don't enjoy his work, I, I honestly... Okay, so anybody who comes out and flat out criticizes this book, like saying it's bad ideas, it, I only have to laugh. That just tells me that you just, you don't like the guy and you'll nitpick anything. I found the same with the first book. I mean, when when you have people trying to tear apart such statements as treat yourself like somebody worth caring about, or surround yourself with good people who want the best for you. Um, enter conversations like uh, the the person you're speaking to knows something you don't. Like when you, you get people that are just arguing against, suggesting that that's bad advice, suggesting, you know, standing up straight with your shoulders back is a bad, is somehow bad or, um, or, or similarly the, the, uh, the, the chapters in, in this book, you know, um, uh, like, yeah, imagining who you could be, um, like trying to be your best. Don't hide from things, uh, that, that, that scare you. Don't, don't, uh, be a slave to ideology, you know, I guess, okay, that one, maybe I can, I can see how people who are ideologues won't like it, but for the most part, it's like, put a lot of care into your relationships. How can you stand there and, and argue that these are be grateful, you know, are, are bad ideas. I mean, I think the only leg they have to stand on would be to suggest if they think that, and some people do this, I don't think Jordan Peterson does, but some people will like plant a grain of truth and, and, and use that to manipulate and create a lie. Um, this is true and we see this and, and manipulators do this and, and, um, but I don't, I fail to see where 
Like if they're saying, well, the, the be grateful is the seed of truth, uh, where's the bad thing that comes from doing that? Um, I think it's a bit of a reach from from people who, like I say, have decided they, they don't like him for whatever reason and like, like or don't like who you want. But um, I, I think it's a... You don't really have a leg to stand on, as far as I can tell, to suggest that his ideas in this book are harmful or wrong or, or you know, um, obviously the people like the, the nihilist guy who thinks that life should be eradicated uh, would disagree with me and say, well, no, he's saying that, you know, it's good to, that meaning comes from overcoming your challenges. He would argue that point. He would say, no, um, the the only meaning in life is feeling hopeless. Uh, okay, I guess. I mean, Jordan Peterson's view is he's a clinical psychologist who has dealt with a lot of people with depression and his own depression um, and anxiety and all those things and um, wants to help people overcome those things, not to succumb to them. So, um I, th I think overall I liked the first book better. Um, this one was a bit of an answer to it in a way, but very good, still very good. Lot lots of good stuff there. Um, to be honest, I think a lot of his talks or I've listened to over the last year or so, like when he's done you know live presentations. Some of those, one or two of those have just stood out to me like they've had tons of insight, um, even more so probably than this book. Um, like it's just like machine gunning one good point after another. This one was interesting and a little bit challenging. I do recommend it to people who uh, want a bit of an intellectual challenge, want something to think about. And want some ideas they can utilize to make their lives happier. And also want to articulate those things and, and maybe want to start thinking about their own life in a slightly deeper way. That's who I would recommend it to. Um, and I, I suspect those are the people who are going to buy it. <laughs>